This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Welcome to CityCast Denver. I'm Bree Davies, and you're listening to Mayoral Madness, our effort to get to know all 17 candidates who want to be Denver's next mayor. Today, I'm speaking with Councilwoman Debbie Ortega. Debbie, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. So you've been campaigning all over the city. I also know you, like me, have lived here for your whole life. You know the city really well. So I wonder, is there something new that you've encountered on the campaign trail, a new place, something that you love that that you didn't know about before? Wow, there's a little about our city that I don't know about, uh, just because, you know, being an at-large member, I get to travel across the whole city. You know, I love to play golf. I have not had time to do any of that, hoping that at some point in the future, I'll have an opportunity to do that. But You know, we have some amazing golf courses in our city owned by Denver City Park Golf Course. If you haven't been there, the views from the clubhouse are just amazing of the mountains uh, and they have good food. So I think maybe that just to share as a place to encourage people to check out if they haven't done so. The other thing is, if you haven't played there, typically um, the tea times are really hard to get. Most people, uh, wait till midnight when they open up the opportunities to book your tea time to book them at midnight so that they Oh, can- really? It's that hot. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, <laughs> it's in demand for sure. Okay. That's that's an interesting one. I have to say, I feel like they have, is this the newer, do they have a newer clubhouse? Is it like- It's brand new. The whole, that's the right. whole golf course was completely redone with a professional, you know, golf course designer and uh, they built a new clubhouse there as well. And there's good parking there, too. It's directly across the street from the Denver Zoo. So if people can't find parking in the clubhouse, sometimes they park across the street at the zoo. Yeah, there's a whole bunch to do right in that area. Debbie, why do you want to be mayor? This is a challenging time that our city is going through. And I have been with this city since basically 1987 as a council person. 1979. Yeah, so I'm really dating myself here, was when I had my first job with the city working for a city council person, Sal Carpio. And when he decided not to run, I ran for his seat and I represented that area for 16 years. What area was that just for folks who maybe don't know? It was District 9. The boundaries are drastically different today than they were back then. It included, uh, it was a crescent-shaped district that went all the way to Mississippi along the I-25 and um, Cherry Creek Corridor. Whoa. Yeah. And so it took in the Gates site, uh, Broadway Marketplace. The old old, uh, Gates Rubber Factory. Right. Okay. Not all of it, but part of it. And then it took in Lower Downtown, uh, the Auraria Campus, and then it covered part of North Denver and then the Globe-Villaria-Swansea neighborhoods all the way up to Colorado Boulevard along the I-70 Corridor. So it was a huge district. A district that had a lot of growth opportunities, a lot of planning took place to build out the Central Platte Valley. And the first issue that I had to dive into when I got elected was 
bringing the property owners and the preservation community together to create the Lower Downtown Historic District. And I was able to do that successfully with, you know, finding a good facilitator to help manage the meetings. And we were able to bring both sides to the middle. Not everybody was happy, but everybody was willing to live with it. And today's history shows that that was a good decision to protect those older historic properties. And a lot of investment has been made in that area. And that was even before we had the football stadium commit to be down in that location. So I worked on a lot of big projects like the football stadium. You know the city well, is what it sounds like. Yes, A lot of different issues. And so this is a time where I think it really matters to have someone that understands how to get things done, the inner workings of the city. And I've been a collaborator and building relationships with people. Everything we do is relational. And so being able to continue to build relationships with people, not just within our city and within our neighborhoods and our businesses, but with our regional neighbors, which is critical to how we're going to solve homelessness, how we're going to address the needs of our unhoused population, how we're going to get at addressing congestion, traffic, and air quality. I want to get us to attainment with the Clean Air Act so that people in our communities who live near highways are not being impacted by the pollution. So those are just some of the issues that I've worked on. I would continue to lead on. The last piece I want to mention is when you look at the top issues that we're all talking about, crime and safety, the needs of our unhoused population, the the needs of missing middle folks like firefighters and bus drivers and teachers who can't afford to live in Denver. I want to address that price point of housing at different levels, not, you know, so that we are meeting the needs of our population. And so part of that is, you know, looking at how we do that through manufactured housing. The other piece I want to add is how we're addressing the issue of guns and crime, and then the deadly drugs that are on our streets that are also impacting our schools and and get those out of our city by working with the different crime task forces that work regionally and bring them together in a more unified way to be more impactful in dealing with that as well as the car thefts and the catalytic converter thefts that are going on so that we get our city back on track and no longer people are afraid to live in our city. They're afraid to go downtown. And these are all solvable problems. So that is a long answer to your question, <laughs> but it's it's that experience more than anything that I think really matters this time more than ever. Well, you've touched on a lot of different issues that I know voters are concerned about. And I'm kind of curious, you, you brought up catalytic converters, car thefts. That seems to be this thing that we don't have a solution for. We don't have an answer and folks are really frustrated. Do you do you have a plan or an idea on how we can handle the car theft situation in Denver? Well, as you know, Bree, the penalties for that were reduced. And I I want to send a message to people who think they can come into our city and sell guns, sell their drugs, steal cars, steal catalytic converters. I want them to understand the gates are closed. This is not a place they want to come and do that kind of business because we're going to be working really hard to stop those things from happening. And to some degree, to how we do that is 
we have to address the staffing levels that are at an unprecedented low, both in our police department and our sheriff's department. I also, you know, believe that the STAR program that we have in our city is doing a good job in addressing people in crisis at the moment by not having to have a police officer respond. But if that person is unhoused and they have a crisis today, they're going to continue to have a crisis until we have treatment beds to put those individuals into. Because like I said earlier, the the kinds of drugs that are on our streets today are, are lethal. They are killing people. They're causing them to decay. They're causing mental illness. And if you haven't read any of the stories written by Sam Quinones in The Atlantic or a book written by him talking about his travels across the country, it's an eye opener. And, and this is what is happening in major cities across the country where these deadly drugs are at. So those are just some of the things that I think are important as part of this big picture equation of how we're going to be working towards, you know, getting the city back on track. Since you brought up uh, the issue with uh, substance use and and drugs in general here, I do want to ask you about safe injection sites, which are would be places that folks could go to do drugs safely. And I know while you were on city council, Denver voted to allow them, but the state has never authorized them to be here. So on the debate stage a few weeks ago, you had you were under the assumption that we did have a safe injection site. Would you could you clear up your position on harm reduction? Yes, I will. Thank you. I, and I was able to clarify that we have a harm reduction facility that would be the safe injection site. And, and as you know, city council did vote to approve that, but it's only if the legislature moves that forward. And that legislation we adopted only allowed the one. And so if they're successful passing that, I think I don't want to open the floodgates. I think having the one is important. And they're already doing amazing work. The harm reduction facility is saving people's lives. They are helping get people away from a life of addiction. And and it's why I supported that one location to be the facility. So I know we're talking about Harm Reduction Action Center, which serves directly serves folks who who use drugs, but it's not a safe injection site at this point. And I know, like you're saying, you would say legislature, the statewide legislature would have to decide that. So you would support a safe injection site as a, as our mayor? Yeah, I mean, the legislation at the city level has already been approved. So if the state passes it, then we've already approved the ability to have one. And the one that makes sense to do that at is the harm reduction facility because they're already doing that work. Absolutely. They're not they're not allowing, you know, somebody to do safe injections at that site today. But that state legislation would allow that to happen. And I think because they already have relationships with people who come there, who trust them. That's why that site makes sense. So I want to ask you another question from the news. And I, I think you know this really well, again, discussing the, the parts of the city you've represented as well as being at large. But the Suncor refinery in Commerce City is slowly restarting after this three-month closure. And we learned earlier this week from the nonprofit Cultivando about a previous sort of unclear, the unclear public health impacts that we now are seeing uh, in the surrounding community. You know, you're from the North side, you, you know, GES, this is your community as mayor. What would you do about Suncor? Well, they're regulated by the state and EPA, but I have been involved in previous conversations. I have not been at the table in, in these recent conversations. I've not 
part of the group that did some of the research um, that that looked at the impact of not just Suncor, but the other polluters in the area. And I think this is where we really have to, I, I will use the bully pulpit of the office to make sure that everything is being done to address the impact that these, the pollutants that emit from those smokestacks are, are deadly. I mean, it's people have asthma in these neighborhoods and the new chemicals that we've learned more about and the quantities of them have to be, um, they, they have to make changes if the state is going to continue to allow them to operate. And so I know a lot of people would love to see them closed. I would as well. But if they're going to operate, I want to make sure they're they're changing out their filters on a regular basis. And I know that's going to add to the cost of their doing business in Colorado. But what they're doing today is is just not acceptable. And people are paying the price with their lives that are being affected by it. As mayor, would you would you use this bully pulpit, as you say, the to pressure a company like Suncor to take its business somewhere else? Yeah, I would. But I don't know where that somewhere else is. And that wouldn't be my problem. I know that when the I-70 project was being proposed, I advocated for the city to work towards helping relocate Purina and do the encroachment on the south side of the highway, not the north side that ended up taking a bunch of, you know, single family properties. I I lost that fight. There were people within the city that didn't want to lose the tax base from Purina. And I understand they will be eventually moving. So it would have been the right call to make then so that, you know, we wouldn't continue to have that uh, operator in. And, you know, yes, you do contribute to the tax base, but I know, and I've been in the neighborhood many times, when families can't even have a barbecue out in their backyard because of the odor that is fused from the facility. And over time, you know, I was part of lobbying the state to make them address the odor issues and working with our own health department. But I think eventually that site is going to be gone, and who knows what happens with that property. But These are examples of using the bully pulpit from the office that will continue to make a difference. And and I have absolutely no problem, you know, being able to rattle the cage of a CEO of a company to encourage them to move or do other things they have to do. But ideally, Suncor should not be this close to the core of our city and neighborhoods. Speaking of that area, we've had you on the show before. Um, I spoke to you about a year and a half ago when you were supporting Mayor Hancock's proposal for a new arena at the National Western Center. Voters ultimately said no to that proposal. And I wonder, you've been on council a long time. Did that vote surprise you at all? Um, It didn't surprise me because of the fact that, and, and I think a lot of it goes back to how this was even rolled out to the community. Initially, when the administration was talking about doing yet another bond issue, they wanted the stock show to be part of that. And my recommendation to them was, well, then you need to lead all these conversations in the community with that and let them know there's room to add more things to this bond package that can meet some of the needs in their neighborhoods. They chose not to do that. And I think that hurt significantly because it meant they had to fight to then get 
the stock show as one of those offerings for the voters to make a decision on. And some of my colleagues didn't support it. There were some people in the neighborhood, and I know from many conversations I've had, there were a lot of people that supported it, but there was a small group that led that effort, hired somebody to basically, you know, run the campaign in opposition. And to their credit, they did a good job in being successful in not allowing that to move forward. And during the campaign process, I said, if this doesn't move forward, the two components of what would be on that campus that will generate the most amount of revenue that will come back to the community were the arena and the 1909 building, which was going to be a public market, which the community was going to have a significant role in and and many opportunities for entrepreneurial uh, presence in that facility. And, you know, all of that has gone by the wayside. And depending on who the next mayor is, there's no guarantee this is going to be a priority for the city. And we made a commitment when I came on in 2011 and the previous mayor, interim Bill Vidal, had made a commitment that this facility was going to go out and be part of Gaylord. And 13 of us signed a letter, sent it to Hancock as soon as he was elected and said, Hell no, we don't support that. This is a Denver traditional program, and we want to keep it in Denver. So you're you're talking about when when Bill Vidal was interim mayor after Hank, or I'm sorry, after Hickenlooper left office to become governor, he signed over saying we sh- or he he thought we should move the the stock show out of Denver. Is that what you're saying? To Aurora, and it would have been part of the Gaylord. Oh, the Gaylord development. development. Okay. Yes. Okay. And and we all said, oh, no, this is a Denver iconic venue. We want to keep it in Denver. And there were commitments made to work with the stock show to address building out the campus. And as you know, part of that includes what do we do with the Coliseum? Until there is a new arena, the stock show will continue to use the Coliseum for their rodeos. And they would love to have a newer facility that can accommodate more seats that would generate more revenue back to the city. But then that leaves the opportunity to do some real things with the Coliseum property. It's not known whether there will be a big fight to try to preserve the building, but there's 30 acres of land. It's got to be cleaned up so it won't be cheap, but You know, there are organizations, there are companies out there that do this kind of environmental cleanup. And at the end of the day, I would love to see housing out there to enjoy the parks along the South Platte Trail. But, you know, there will be opportunities and the community is already engaged in those conversations about what they would like to see there. I think to have the land turned over to the community, and I was originally a person advocating for that, but as I have seen the cost, even private developers pre-COVID who are looking at doing development on that site kind of threw their arms up and said, this is going to be too costly. So if private developers who have access to big financing, including public financing from, from city tools, um, couldn't make it happen, I'm not sure how a small community would be successful doing that. 
So I, I'd love to see a public-private participation with the community being a full, you know, player in that process in, in terms of not just a seat at the table, but having some real voice and financial participation in that and financial benefit. Thinking about, again, about this vote on the National Western Center, what did you learn from that experience about where Denver is right now? I think there's a commitment to National Western. A lot of people love going out and enjoying the stock show and rodeo. As you know, this is not just about the stock show anymore. We have CSU. Um, They're doing amazing work with the three new buildings that they've built on the campus. A lot of that is focused around food and water and animals and how do we have a sustainable environment that we can leave to future generations the arena and the 1909 building are a component of all of that at some point in the future. But this is an amazing opportunity for our community. I mean, CSU is providing scholarships to kids in these neighborhoods. National Western has historically done scholarships. Uh, CSU's interest is to get them interested into, you know, these, these different areas that I just described. But I think there's there's more work yet to be done to try to build out this campus in a way that it was initially envisioned that will provide opportunities, not just for these neighborhoods, but for the broader community. And if you've ever heard uh, Dr. Frank talk about his vision for this whole campus, he wants to solve world hunger. So so that's just an example of the magnitude of the thinking of of what this campus can do for Colorado and for for the world. I'm glad that you brought up the solve world hunger idea because I think back to my conversation with Alfonso Espino and Sarah Lake from the No on the Arena um, initiative. And um, Alfonso's from the community and he would say, I want a grocery store before I want an arena where other people can come and do things around agriculture. What would be your response to that? Well, the, the, the 1909 building was going to be a public market that was going to bring all of those offerings to the community, bring in local farmers. And as you know, we have some amazing programs here in our city, like Revision, like the Grow House. And many of them have a relationship with a lot of the local farmers as well. The ones that are in Adams County and Weld County that also try to bring their product to market. Many of them supply the farmers markets that we have around the city. And so I think that would have been another way. And there were already conversations that were had. I sat on the committee that looked at what the vision for the 1909 building would be. And part of that was making sure that SNAP benefits would be accepted and, you know, that there was participation opportunities for people from the community who worked in the food industry, who had their own restaurants or you know, in some cases, they were the women who were working at Komal who would want to have their own shop in, in the market. So I think all those opportunities right now have been lost because that building doesn't exist as the public market today. So that would have not been a grocery store. It would have helped fill the gap. But I agree. I think there is a need for a grocery store in these communities. And unfortunately, the decisions get made by the operators and they always look for rooftops and they look for 
mass, you know, of people that will support their grocery stores. You know, there is a Whole Foods over there, but that's not at a price point that the average person in these neighborhoods can afford. And so uh, I think Alfonso has raised a, a valid point that is important. And it goes back to when I represented those those neighborhoods and, and that need, you know, existed back then. It still does. It's also part of why I supported the Parkville Golf Course. They'll have a grocery store there. It is closer than these folks having to go all the way to Commerce City to buy their groceries. But I will push back a little and say that the developers can't promise that grocery store because like you're saying, the grocery operators have to make that decision. But you think that yeah, that I would think, still so I be think a possibility. The, is the population in GES is different from the location of where Park Hill Golf Course is. It's surrounded by a lot more rooftops today and will have additional rooftops that will sustain a grocery store at that location. And you're saying rooftops like population. There's a pop there's enough yeah. of a population okay. there. Okay. I could I could talk to you about this for hours, but let's let's move on to your platform. Um I read a policy on your platform about homelessness and I I, I what I gather is it sounds like you'd like to continue the sweeps, connect folks with services and like you said work with regional partners. So um, folks outside of Denver thinking about this homelessness issue holistically. But I would say it sounds a little bit to me like it's what Hancock is doing right now or the administration is doing right now. If you were elected mayor, Debbie, what would you do differently? So it's not true that we're actually working with all of our regional neighbors because today Denver receives the lion's share of people from the metro area in our city and Denver taxpayers are bearing that cost. I think Aurora is the exception today. They have a shelter. They're doing more. They're bringing online some small, uh, I don't know if you'd call them tiny homes, but they're working on that kind of effort. I know the provider that's doing a lot of that work with the city of Aurora. But the 250 beds that will be opening at Ridgeview, which is state-owned property that's on 500 acres, Where's that? It's in Arapahoe County. Oh, I've okay. never been to the exact site, so sure, I can't but tell you exactly where it's that, close. But it's, yeah, it's in Arapahoe County. Um, and those treatment beds will be critical for what I just described earlier about people who really need the mental health treatment bed and the substance abuse. Um, and again, Star's doing a great job, but that person until they get that you know intensive treatment that helps get their life back on track. I'm not looking at you know, putting somebody in an institution. We got away from that a long, long time ago, but those treatment beds become critical to help somebody get their life stabilized. I've had family members that have had substance abuse issues and it's not easy and it really does take these intensive programs to help them get their life together. You would say that's your, that's that would be one approach. I'm sorry, go ahead. The other piece of this is something I've been working on and this is where and how Helping them get back to employment is a critical part of the big picture. During my Denver Road home days, we got 200 people employed in downtown motels. It changed their lives. And most of them are still working in these hotels. A number of them are supervisors. They no longer felt invisible to the rest of the world. It rebuilt their sense of self-worth and pride and purpose in what they were doing in being part of something bigger than themselves. And this is why for the people we've been housing in our motels and our 24-7 shelters, 
I think helping, and again, not everybody is physically able to get back to work, right? But for those who are, none of them want to be stuck in this situation of limpo. And we have the tools to be able to help with that. That is part of what I want to do in helping move people to self-sufficiency. At the end of the day, when these federal dollars run out, we will not be able to sustain these costs with the city's general fund. So I want to have an exit plan that works for these individuals and families and for the city, because I don't want to see the city in a situation where we wait till the end of these funds, which I believe is 2024, when we have to draw them all down and just say, OK, we've done what we can. Now you're all on your own. I want to have a, a plan and a program in place that works with these individuals to assist them in helping themselves. And we do that by bringing together all of our different, both city funded as well as other programs that can help reskill, retrain, upskill, and connect people to better livable wage jobs. So I have a question from a listener. Um, Kimberly H. writes, quote, I would like to know if you were elected mayor, would you appoint any of the other candidates to your cabinet if you would, who would that be and why? So first of all, I've made no commitments to anybody for any position. Um, and I think that it's important to have a fair and open process for how I will select those individuals. This is the first time that a mayor will have to run all of their new cabinet people by city council for approval. We've had a couple of appointments that have come up as under Mayor Hancock's term that have left that have had to be approved by council. But the whole slate, this is the first time that a mayor will have to have all of those approved. And this is an issue that I I supported and helped push for that the voters approved, because I think that balance of power is very important between the mayor, you know, the strong mayor, weak council form of government that we have in, in Denver. Uh, so. That's the process that I would use in making. I think we have some good candidates that are running, but I've not had conversations with anybody about, you know, I would love to have you on my cabinet. Um, I would have those conversations once I know I'm in the runoff. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. You know, to just ask yeah. them if they would be interested, not to offer a specific job, but to see if there was some interest and have them plugged into the pipeline of the folks I would be looking at. And for me, I'm going to be looking at people who are professionals that are the best in their field for these positions. I want somebody that's had housing development experience in my housing office. I want somebody that has had operations experience at our airport. I want the best functioning, efficient operating airport that keeps the costs down for our traveling public and that can move people through without gridlock as just a couple of examples. So we have a carousel of questions where we ask each candidate a couple different things. I have to ask you, Debbie, Casa Bonita, great restaurant, greatest restaurant. So I'm anxious to see the new rebirth of it. I mean, I, you know, it was a great place to visit. A lot of people felt like it was an iconic uh, venue in our metropolitan area. It's my understanding the the chef who will be doing the cooking 
has an amazing reputation and does fantastic work. So I think the quality of the food is going to be um, <laughs> addressed like from, from what it had historically been. And the, the fact that they still have the pool and the diving, I think is supposed to be part of that. I, I think it's going to continue to be a draw. I think their challenge is going to be parking. Interesting. It's interesting because it is, it is, uh, it's in a strip mall that is centered in a sea of parking lots, but you're thinking it's going to be so busy. I think so. Okay. okay. I, and especially at the beginning, everybody's going to want to go see it as it opens. But I think when they see that the food offerings will be, you know, comparable to other quality restaurants across, you know, the metropolitan area, I think it's going to continue to be a draw, especially for families. Yeah, I agree. So part of the reason we're asking all 17 candidates for interviews is because we really want to hear a fresh vision for the future of Denver. Debbie, what is your vision for Denver? So I think, you know, Bree, one of the things that has shaped cities and especially our city is around the issue of transportation. And one of the things I want to do is build out that Colfax BRT from Golden to Aurora so that that changes the way our transportation system works. It means you no longer have to have every bus come into downtown Denver. They can interface with that spine. This also ties into Front Range Rail that would come from Fort Collins to Pueblo. And part of that, I want to make sure it touches and interfaces with our RTD system in our city so that we're able to move people around the area. Closing the first mile, last mile gap for people will make it easier for folks to move around our metropolitan area better so that they don't have to be in a car. We are not in attainment with the Clean Air Act today. And if we're all working together, and this gets back to my regional collaboration on lots of different issues, this is where I think we all need to lean in and work together to look at how we solve that problem. And then in return, that also addresses the health impacts to people who are being affected by the brown cloud. So transportation, we've done that with the airport. Um, I think looking at how that front range rail can be built out. Um, ideally, I would love to see how we can work with our neighbors to the north and provide the opportunity for them to get benefits by relocating the central main line of rail traffic that comes through our city. And, and be able to take the petroleum tank cars that come through and sit in our city away from the most populated area of our state. And so those are the other components of this transportation vision that I would love to see built out over time. So you're talking about not just uh, like public transit rail, like you said, the Colfax uh, bus rapid transit, expanding it from Do just Denver to Aurora to Golden, the full strip of Colfax. But then you're also talking about rail running through the city that might be carrying dangerous chemicals and to avoid situations like we saw in Ohio. Exactly. Okay. Debbie, where can people learn more about you and your campaign? You can go to my website at DebbieOrtega.com. And we've got all my platform information on there. So issues we have not talked about today, you can look at what I've done in the past on those issues and what I plan to do in addressing them moving forward as the mayor of Denver. And I would be honored to have the support of your listeners. And like I said earlier, this is a time where 
having some experience with somebody that knows how this city works has been doing this for the last 40 years. Denver is a different city than it was 15 years ago when Mayor Hickenlooper left. And I know what it takes to make a difference. been part of moving our city out of different recessions. And I know I can do this job and I can only do it with the support of people across the city. So I appreciate the opportunity to come on your program and do this outreach to your your listening audience. So thank you very much. Councilwoman Debbie Ortega, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Bree. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Mayoral Madness, what we hope is a 17-part interview series with all the candidates on the ballot to be Denver's next mayor. We're planning to publish these interviews each week leading up to Election Day on April 4th, and we'll be providing more news and analysis during the week. Subscribe to CityCast Denver and learn more about Mayoral Madness at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back soon with even more mayoral candidates who want to lead the city.